Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, there was once a guy who was on a bridge, he was about to jump, and a good Samaritan, a a do-gooder, passed by, and he said, don't do it. The jumper said, nobody loves me. He attempted uh, to convince the rescuer that he was ready to jump, and the rescuer said, but but God loves you. You believe in God? He said, yes. The Samaritan continued. He said, are you a Christian or a Jew? The man said he was a Christian. He said, me too. He said, a Protestant or Catholic? Well, Protestant. Me too. Well, what franchise? He said, Baptist. (laughs) Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, well, I'm a Northern Baptist. Me too. Northern Baptist conservative or Northern Baptist liberal? He said, I'm a Northern conservative Baptist. You won't believe it. I am too. Are you a northern conservative Baptist of the Great Lakes region or a northern conservative Baptist of the eastern region? He said, I'm a northern conservative Baptist of the Great Lakes region. Me too, the rescuer declared. Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region council of 1879 or northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region region council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. The rescuer then shouted, die, heretic, (laughs) and pushed him over the bridge. (laughs) Of course, that may be be a little extreme. I think there's perhaps a more realistic story. There's a man who died and went to heaven. An angel showed him around, informed him that heaven was made up of many rooms in which all the various denominations would end up filtering themselves out. Angel took the man down one hallway, and there was beautiful choral singing. And the man said, well, who's in that room? And the angel said, well, that's where the Methodists are. This is how they wanted to praise God for eternity. The angel takes the man a little further down the hallway, and all of a sudden the man hears clapping and tambourine music and shouting, and the angel said, well, these are the charismatics, the angel explained. After several more rooms... There was another room where lots of snoring was coming out of, and he said, well, that's where the Presbyterians are. The angel takes the man to the last room of the hallway, and the angel places his finger over his lips, and he says, shh, be very, very quiet. Well, why, the man said. The angel answers, because this is the room where all the Baptists are, and they think they're the only ones up here. Of course, we know that today navigating the maze of denominations in our land can be challenging. Uh, There's even multiple camps of Baptists that you could find yourself in. Independent Baptists, Fundamental Baptists, Missionary Baptists, Southern Baptists, any other kinds of stripe and shade of Baptists. I have found that in my time in ministry that I've been grateful for the relationships that I've developed with Christians from, from those different camps. You know, some of my dearest friends in ministry have worn something other than Baptist uniforms. And we learn from each other. We give each other a hard time. But it's been a blessing to have friends who don't necessarily do everything the way that I think things ought to be done. Becomes more challenging for us, though, when we begin to move beyond the comfortable camps of evangelical churches. We have 
We know that in heaven, however, there will be those who are more than just Baptists. And in fact, we won't wear our denominational uniform any longer once we stand in front of the Lord. We'll all just be Jesus followers, Jesus people. And I look forward to that day as well. And, and of course, in this day and time, in this season, we know that we live in a world where false teachers and false doctrine is prevalent. And it's important for us to be able to know those things which are non-negotiable and to understand those things which unnecessarily divide us. However, this morning, as we work our way through Acts, we're going to kind of begin a little mini-series in this journey that will challenge us to maybe think a little bit more, um, think differently about the kingdom of God, perhaps to challenge us to lay aside some of our presuppositions when it comes to God's kingdom. The next three chapters, I believe, however, are some of the most critical chapters in the overall theme of this book. They represent a dramatic tearing down of centuries of walls that had been built. And as we bring these, these lessons into our day and time, they really help us to define who we are as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they really help us to understand our call to expand the tent of the kingdom of God. If you've got your Bibles today, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 9. We're going to cover a lot of chapters over the next couple of weeks, but I want to begin here in Acts chapter 9. I would invite you to stand as I read these words from Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32. The scene shifts to the apostle Peter. We pick up in verse 32. As Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, he raised her up, then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Lord, I thank you for the precious words of God. I thank you for the retelling of Peter's story. I thank you for this, this change that we are seeing take place in the apostle's heart. And I pray that as we consider how you are changing and molding and working in his life, that you might do the same in our life as well. Bless us now as we consider your words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As our camera pans back from Saul, we now focus in on the apostle Peter. And we find out here in Acts chapter 9 that Peter has taken a bit of a journey. He has left Jerusalem. We 
uh, find that he's gone to a couple of towns. And what's interesting as we read these words, we, we see the names of these places, and we're tempted to just place them in the list of all the other biblical place names that don't mean much to you. I mean, if you're like me, you're reading your Bible, and you encounter a place name. I mean, if it's Jerusalem or Damascus or a major city, obviously there's some context there. But, but how many of us know anything about Lydda? I mean, not much unless you're a Bible scholar. There's seminary professors you could ask about Lydda, and they would say, hold on, let me think of where that's at. So we, we chalk these place names up to just, uh, just to, to give us a little bit of context, but they don't mean much to us. You know, it's kind of like here. I've, I've learned that when we post job listings here, that it's best if I present the job in the greater Chattanooga area. That if I list that the job is in Flintstone, Georgia, the interest level suddenly diminishes. But if I say in the greater Chattanooga area, then, then suddenly people are like, oh, I know where that is. I have context for, for what that means. Flintstone is a lot like Lydda or Joppa. Uh, it's an obscure place without much significance except for the people who call it home. And when you tell people that you live in Flintstone, what's the first thing they say? Yabba dabba do, right? And that's the context that they, that they have for, for such a place. Chickamauga is not much better. Civil War buffs may know the name, but, uh, you know, High Point, uh, any of these places, they don't have much significance for people outside of the people who, who live there. However, when we read about Lydda and Joppa, we need to understand that they are more than just dots on a map in the back of your Bible. These places serve for us potent reminders that the gospel was never intended to be contained in Jerusalem. Already in the book of Acts, we've met Ethiopians, uh, an, an Ethiopian who, who took the gospel back to his homeland. We've got people in Damascus, which is, which is not in Jerusalem. We've, we're seeing the, the gospel beginning to, to break loose. But here we've got more towns that are located away from the epicenter there at Pentecost. And these towns have, have functioning churches. And of course, time has passed. We've had, we've had years tick by now since that day of Pentecost. And so, but the gospel is beginning to break out. Now, we don't know where the church at Lydda, we don't know where the church at Joppa started. We don't know who the founding pastor was. Maybe this was Philip's handiwork when he was on his somewhat of a missionary journey. Maybe these are places where the persecuted Christians from Jerusalem, maybe this is where they fled. And when they fled, you immediately had Christians beginning to establish communities and churches because that's what Christians do. If you take a group of Christians and, and, and force them into other places, they're going to bind together because that's how God has wired us. That's how God has, cre has created us in his image. He's created us for community. And so if you take Christians, remove them from here, send them elsewhere, they're going to automatically clump together into this community. It doesn't really matter where these churches came from. But what does matter is that gospel ministry can't be contained inside the walls of a church building. Because that's what gospel ministry is. Gospel ministry is constantly pushing out. Gospel ministry is constantly reaching out, drawing others in. Gospel ministry can't be contained. And the second you try to contain gospel ministry, guess what? It stops being gospel ministry. If, if we only focus on what takes place in this room, then we have a lot of religious activity, but we're not a gospel-centered church. We're focused on, on inside of this. The gospel is constantly pushing out. We may be doing religion, but we're not doing gospel. As Peter 
travels about, we, we find him, it's almost like he's casually engaged in healing ministry. Like, you know, here goes Peter. He's, he's, he's showing up at this town, and he, you know, there's somebody who needs healed. I'll heal him. It, it's almost casual in the sense, but, but we first meet this man by the name of Aeneas. Aeneas is somebody, we, again, he's, he's one of these characters that shows up. We don't know much about him. He's paralyzed. He's been paralyzed for eight years. I can't imagine being paralyzed for eight minutes. And this man's been paralyzed for eight years. Eight years of suffering. Eight years of trouble. And what he does here looks almost identical to how Jesus heals the paralytic in John chapter 5. If you remember in John chapter 5, Jesus deals with the paralytic. says, take up, you know, take your mat. And this is what Peter does. He says, get up and make your bed. Charles Swindoll said this was really powerful. Some of us have been saying for years, arise and make your bed to our teenagers. To no result. But right here, Peter says, arise and make your bed, and the man listens immediately. So this is true power at work. But there are consequences to this action. What are the consequences of this action? All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw it and turned to the Lord. It may have happened in the church. The text actually suggests that Aeneas is one of the saints that Peter was visiting there in Lydda. But the miracle that took place pointed everybody to Jesus. Everybody knew that this was the apostle Peter, and he did this miracle under the authority of Jesus. And so everyone who saw this, the whole town heard about it, and everybody wanted to know who this Jesus was because that's what gospel ministry does. You can't contain it. And here is a church that's made up of people who love one another, who care for one another, and Aeneas is living proof of that, and you can't hide it. You can't contain it. People are going to hear about it. People are going to learn about it, and that's exactly what happens. It says everyone, everyone, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. What a powerful day that was. Well, while this is going on and there's this revival taking place in Lydda and Sharon, you've got another town that's about 10, 12 miles away. It's a town called Joppa. And guess what? There's a church there, and that church is also growing. Remember what's, what we read about in Acts chapter 9, verse 31? We read these words. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. It was being built up. It was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It was multiplying. So the church at Joppa is one of these churches. It's growing. It's got peace. There's multiplication happening. Joppa is being built up as well. But what is Joppa? Again, is it a little dot on the map? Well, history tells us that Joppa is a major seaport. And so you think about Savannah or Charleston or Jacksonville or Tampa or Miami. You think of those major towns that have these major seaports. And you know what those sea those seaside, those seaport towns are like. It's a, it's a crossroads of humanity. There's people from all walks of life, people who are getting on ships and getting off ships and people, merchants and travelers and everybody all crossing through this, this metropolitan area. So you know there's commerce, there's all sorts of businesses and things. And so Joppa is a major, major place. Commerce is flowing through this town. But here in the middle of this town of Joppa, we meet a woman by the name of of Dorcas. Um, not the best name in the Bible. Please don't, you probably don't want to name your daughter Dorcas. That may prove to be troublesome for her later in life. But her name is, is Dorcas. It means gazelle. And so it sort of speaks to her grace and her, her just, the, just her beauty. 
so here's this woman named Dorcas, and she's a great woman. She's a remarkable woman. She's, she's highlighted in here as someone who clearly has the gift of service. Verse 36 tells us that she was full of good works and, and acts of charity. What a great word to say about somebody. You know, if someone looked at, you, at your funeral and said, this person was full of good works and acts of charity, well, then that's, a, that's all you need to say. It's a powerful statement about what someone is like. Verse 39 tells us that she had good standing with the widows and ministered to them. We're told that the widows had these, these items that she had made that they were very proud of. And we don't know if they were gifts to the widows or if it was ministry that she did with the widows. She may have herself been a widow. But these widows are holding these items that they held in great regard um, that, that spoke so much of her character and, and who she was. Again, Luke doesn't give us many details. But what he does tell us is that she got sick and and she died. It's a terrible thing to happen there. And there was great weeping and mourning taking place there because she was such a precious person there in the church. But it just so happens, which doesn't really happen in the Bible. There's no such thing as it just so happens in the Bible. But it just so happens that when she died, Peter was just a few hours away. And what's happened over in Lydda is, is you've got this revival happening. Stories are being told. You won't believe what's happened to the church in Lydda. Everybody in the whole stinking town is following Jesus now. Word is, is being spread. People are hearing about this. And over in Joppa, 10 or 12 miles away, they know Peter is responsible for a great revival taking place. And they say, Dorcas has died. Somebody go get Peter. He's the, he's the one who can help us figure out how, how to do. Maybe, maybe God will do a miracle through Peter. And so instead of tending to the body that they would normally do, someone runs and gets Peter just a few hours down the road. So Peter complies, he goes, because he's probably heard of her reputation as well. And again, in a miracle that was so similar to the one that Jesus performed in Mark chapter 5 with Jairus' daughter, Peter here was used by God to bring Dorcas back from the dead. It's an incredible story. It's one of, the, one of the couple of resurrections we see here in the book of Acts. But, but Dorcas is brought back to life. Well, that story's not going to stay inside, is it? Well, people are going to tell that story. I mean, wouldn't you? If, if you were in the, in the waiting room outside of the ICU and somebody came out and, and said, you know, so-and-so has passed away, I mean, you know what that's been like. You've probably been in that place before. And imagine the chaplain coming out of that, of that ICU into that waiting room and say, you won't believe what happened. I prayed, and this person has come back to life. The, 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 the heart monitor starts moving again. Can you imagine? The, I mean, they would hear it multiple floors away, the, the shouting, the celebrating that would take place in that moment. And this is what's happened. You're not keeping this story contained. And what happens? There's consequences. Obviously, Dorcas was able to continue her ministry, but we're told in verse 42 that many believed in the Lord. Joppa's a bigger town, so it's not the whole town, but many believed in the Lord. The thing to keep in mind is all of this is happening miles and miles away from Jerusalem. The gospel has moved from that center there where Pentecost took place, and now it has moved well beyond Jerusalem throughout Judea. You see, Acts, the book of Acts, started with the church breaking out in Jerusalem, but by the time we get 10 chapters in, we've got a church that's breaking out of Jerusalem. That's what's taking place here, because you can't contain it. A church that is focused on its gospel mission will not be contained. It will not be contained because you can't do what God said 
and not see the church grow and expand and, and, and blow through the barriers that exist. The two are incompatible. And so when we see a church in decline, we see a church that's not doing God's ministry, we shouldn't be surprised to see that it's shrinking in on itself. One thing we need to understand here, though, Peter, Peter's a good Jew. It's not a pejorative thing to say. It's not an anti-Semitic thing to say. Peter was a good Jewish man before he met Jesus. Followed the law to the best of his ability. He wasn't a Pharisee like Saul, but he knew the law. He knew what it said. He tried to live his life in a way that was, was honoring to the Old Testament law. Long before he met Jesus, he was a good Jew. In Acts chapter 10, verse 28, Peter even says, talking, uh, talking here, he says that you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter's talking to Cornelius, who we'll meet next week. And he, he's telling him, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. The law tells me I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to associate with you. I'm not supposed to have, have anything in common with you because you're a Gentile. I shouldn't be here. Peter's a good Jew. But we need to understand what's happening here is very dramatic. What's taking place here is something that we need to pay very close attention to because Peter is a good Jew and he is being transformed. Just like the good Pharisee Saul was being transformed. See, Saul was a good Pharisee who was out to kill Christians, but Jesus came in and wrecked Saul's life. And Saul, who was a killer of Christians, became a, a, a preacher of the gospel. And here we find that Peter, who was a good Jew, who was not, didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles, that, that Peter's being changed as well. In a sense, both of them had scales removed from their eyes. Fundamentalists would look at Peter and say that he is compromising with the culture. He is fraternizing with Gentiles. He even takes lodging, we're told, in one of the most unclean places he could find. We're told there in the last verse I read that he was staying at a tanner's house. A tanner's house, someone who makes leather. They take all the unclean animals and all that, and, the, and it's, it's death. It's, you know what that's like. If you've ever seen dirty jobs or anything like that, you know how gross it is to make leather. It's not a clean process, and this is where Peter is is staying. In fact, if Saul, the Pharisee, heard what Peter, the Jew, was doing, Saul would be mortified by Peter's behavior. That's how, that's how ironic this whole story is. But what's happening here, God is working on them both. And what we have to understand is this. If the gospel is going to reach the nations then the hearts of those who carry the gospel to the nations must learn to love the nations. Let me say that again. If the gospel is going to reach the nations, then the hearts of those who carry the gospel to the nations must learn to love the nations. And what this means is that old biases and old prejudices have to be stripped away. And Peter is working through this. We're reading him work through this right here. And he's about to learn something firsthand, that the tent that holds the kingdom of God is a very, very large tent. And Peter himself is going to be on the front lines of making it even bigger. Let's understand this. We understand this is happening in the book of Acts. We know the gospel's working its way out of Jerusalem. It's making its way to the ends of the earth. We're still doing it today. 
The ministry, the work of expanding the tent of the kingdom hasn't changed a bit. Last week, Foster preached an excellent sermon encouraging us to evaluate our methods while maintaining fidelity to our message. We have to do that. We have to to maintain our message. We have to continue preaching the gospel. The gospel is unchanging. The gospel is always relevant. We have to continue to do that, but we must constantly evaluate the methods we're using for delivery. 18 months ago, we learned that we all had to learn how to deliver the gospel through a video camera. Now, we could have sat and said, I don't know if we're going to do that or not. But we had to learn quickly that the way we were going to convey the gospel in this new pandemic world is through that silver thing hanging from the ceiling right there. We had to learn to do that quickly. But we must constantly be evaluating our methods. It was true for Peter, and it's been true for every generation of Christians ever since. We have to maintain faithfulness to the message while examining the methods we use to communicate it. Our call to seek and save the lost hasn't changed. And I would argue that as we witness the growing depravity of this current generation, that our calling is even more urgent. If you don't like where we are in the world today, I can tell you that there is one solution, and it is the crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the solution to what ails our problems today. And nobody's preaching it except the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no one else's responsibility. It's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It is a church issue. It is a gospel issue. And the only solution is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's remember this. One of the biggest obstacles to that work that God has called us to may actually be staring back at us in the mirror. For the next couple of sermons, I want us to consider what this means for us as we seek to increase the tent of the kingdom of God. And there's a couple of things that we have to agree on. If we don't agree on these things, it's going to be very hard for for us to be able to embrace this. And, And the first thing we have to agree on is this, is we cannot look around and be content with our current situation. I think we've gotten, yeah, I don't want to be too mean here, but I think COVID has given us an excuse to be, well, it's just COVID. It's just COVID. People don't come to church because it's just COVID. I hear that, and, and we, we, we say that, but let's face the reality that there's a whole lot of lost and dying people that are out there that aren't coming to church. It has nothing to do with COVID. It has to do with their heart being far away from the Savior. It has to do with the fact that they don't want anything to do with Jesus. It has to do with the fact that we're not sharing the good news of Christ. We can't look around and be content with our current situation. We also need to recognize that, that as, we, as we deal with our current situation, that there is an overwhelming reality in the church, in evangelical churches, and it is a phenomenon known as the graying of the church. Now, that's not about us being trendy with our color scheme. You know, grays are so neutral, we should paint our churches gray. That's not what this is about. The graying of the church is is actually asking us to evaluate the age of our current congregations. And if you look around at the evangelical church today, we are not immune from this as Southern Baptists. We are getting older and older and older. And some of us are trying hard to make the gray not show by coloring it or cutting it off 
but it's a reality. Thank God for the kids that came down front today to remind us of this, of this reality. Thank God for that. But we are not immune to this, and if we do not take steps to deal with it, there are going to be fewer and fewer and fewer churches left. We can't be content with this, and we must work hard to overcome. But the second thing we need to agree on is this. We have to recognize that swapping tents is not the same as growing the tent. Swapping tents is not the same as growing the tents. I do recognize that there are times that it's necessary for us to move from one body to the other. I do understand that it is necessary when God says it's time to go that we follow the Lord. But I don't think we can recognize the revolving doors that we have to the body of Christ today. This, this move from body to body to body is not expanding the tent, it's simply moving it. And that's not what God's called us to do. So many of our megachurches today have grown off the membership roles of our smaller churches. And so many today, we're looking for churches based on our preferences without really stopping and say, Lord, where can you put me to work the best? Where, where can I be utilized the most? And I think we have to agree that this is not a good reality that we're in today. It's not good for us. And none of these things are helping us to accomplish our objectives. So looking at the Apostle Peter here and, and what God is doing in, in his heart, we have to ask the question, what does it look like to enlarge that tent? Well, the first step to enlarge the tent is, is actually that we need, to, we need to gain a vision for those outside the tent. I love what's happening in Peter's life. He has left his comfort zone. We're told he's going from place to place. But, but we understand there was persecution in Jerusalem, but he could have stayed there. He had a network. There were places where he could have taken cover. I mean, he, he had a network there. He had resources there. He could have gone back to Galilee. You know he had family there. You know he had friends there. You know he, had a, he could find a boat. Peter could found a boat and got back to fishing, if anybody could have found a boat. But that's not what Peter does. Instead, he finds himself away from Jerusalem, away from Galilee. He's over on the coast. And, and there's churches out there on the coast. There's believers out there that he's never met. People that needed to hear from Peter. The key that we need to understand about the Great Commission is that we've been thinking about it a little bit incorrectly. Now, of course, we take the gospel with us. We go on mission trips. We go. We go to the ends of the earth. We send missionaries. We go on mission trips. All those things are good. That's great. But the Great Commission properly translated is, is as you go, make disciples, not go and make disciples. It's as you go. That means that, that when you leave here and you go to lunch, you are going making disciples. You are going sharing the gospel. When you leave lunch and go home and you wake up in the morning and you go to work, as you go to work, you are engaged in Great Commission work. As you go to school, you are engaged in Great Commission work. As you go to the store, as you go to the doctor, as you go to these places, you are engaged in Great Commission work. It's not just about going on a mission trip. Our daily lives should be lived as Great Commission Christians, as ambassadors to the kingdom of God. As you go, you go with a view towards enlarging the tent of the kingdom. And that's not just for people who, who preach sermons or people who get a paycheck from the church. That's for every single person who calls on Jesus Christ as Lord. As you go, you make disciples. And as you go, 
you realize there's a whole lot of people not in the tent. We were at uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, I mean Universal Studios last week. And, um, and some of you saw the picture I posted. Um, there was a, a, a beautiful rainbow that, that we, we managed to, to capture. And this, I mean, this beautiful, beautiful double rainbow. And, and, and one of the pictures I've got, it actually has the rainbow bottoming out at the big universal ball that you see at the start of the movies. And, and it was actually bottoming out there. And, and I'm kind of thinking to myself, you know, God's got a better, you know, God paints a better picture of a rainbow than anybody else. I'll just leave it there. And I'm sort of just, you know, musing to myself, you know, you know God's got a sense of humor. You know, all these thoughts that I'm having. And there was a child There was a child 10 feet away from me. And he saw the same thing we saw. And he said, look, Mom, Universal Studios loves gay people too. People everywhere need the gospel. People everywhere needs to hear who Jesus is and what he's done. There's a whole lot of people not in the tent. We put this into work in the context of our church, and we have to ask the question, who's not in the tent? I know we spend a lot of time at our church. (laughs) It's almost become, sadly, a, a meme um, of people who used to go here. And if you don't know what meme is, it's, it's kind of a trope, a, a trope on social media that, that makes a mockery of something. People who used to go here. And man, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And you and I both know this. We could spend a lot of time making a list of what caused this or what caused that. We could blame this pastor or that music person. We could blame this decision or that decision. Hear me correctly. I am a firm believer in learning from our mistakes. However, we are not reaching a solitary soul by blaming past decisions, past leaders, past actions. No one's being reached. We can... It's a circular firing squad is what it is. This week, the Walker County Commissioners approved a brand new apartment complex to be built across the street from Ridgeland High School. You can love it or hate it. Guess what? Your opinion no longer matters about whether you love it or hate it because it's a reality. It's coming. 156, 157 plus units are being built right there of, of multi-person dwelling in those, in those, in those apartments. Just rough math, 750 to 1,000 new residents are moving in right there at the intersection of Battlefield Parkway and Happy Valley Road. 1,000 people be here like that. They've already approved a multi-500 home subdivision on the opposing corner that are about to be start building as well. We are literally talking about thousands of new residents moving into our community. Again, you can like it or hate it. You can put your house up for sale and you can move further into the cove. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. But as the church, we look and we say, there's 
there's thousands of new people that are about to move into our community. And, well, let's close the walls. You know, let's, let's, let's make sure we're... Our goal is to go and make disciples. That's our task. Our task is, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to make sure that every single one of those people that moves in understands who Jesus is and what he's done for them and that they hear that there's a church that loves them and wants to point them to Jesus. It's our job. We're about to experience one of the largest population booms in our county's history, and it's going to happen in our own backyard. That's reality. And the majority of the people who are moving in there are going to be young families. And there's two things we know about young families who are moving into a new community. One is they're most likely not going to belong to a church. And two, they're the most likely to benefit from the loving community that a church provides. We know those things to be true. And as a church, we can lament our past, or we can learn from it and get ourselves ready to enlarge our tent to welcome our new neighbors while maintaining fidelity to our message while constantly evaluating our method. That only happens if we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and get a vision for those that are not in the tent. And it only happens if we're willing to lay down some of our wants and preferences for the work of the kingdom of God. Peter was willing to stay in a nasty, smelly house of a tanner for the work that he was doing. It wasn't kosher, it wasn't clean, it wasn't something a good Jewish man would do, but Peter did it because God was working on his heart and he was about to be changed. But let's jump forward just a little bit and consider another very important question in this idea of enlarging the tent. And this question is this, who have you excluded from the tent? Look at Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. Peter is staying at Simon the Tanner's house. He's up on the roof. And we're told in verse 9, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet was descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, as Baptists, we look at this sheet that was let down from heaven, this vision being let down from heaven, and I'll tell you what, that thing is full of bacon. It is full of fried catfish and fried shrimp. I'm thinking there's a low country boil in that, she in that sheet because, man, that'd be good. There's plates piled high with pulled pork. For the more bougie among us, there's probably even a lobster or two that's there. But if all we see is food... We've missed the point. As I look around the room today, I can't help but notice something. That sheet isn't about the food. It's about you. It's about me. And it's about who we've placed in that sheet suspended in front of Peter. Dr. H.A. Ironside said that when his father died, this passage was running through his father's mind. He kept repeating, a great sheet and, and wild beast and and, and when he could not get the words out, he started over, but stalled once more at the same place. And finally, a friend bent over and whispered, John, the text says, creeping 
things. Oh, yes, he said. That's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in. You see, instead of filling our sheet with unclean foods, our sheet is filled with ethnic groups due to our prejudices. Our sheet is filled with people of other political persuasions. Our sheet is filled with those of less education or perhaps those of more education. Our sheet is filled with people who have failed in their marriage or failed with their children. And all these people are created in God's image. And all these people are people who need a Savior. All these people are people that Jesus died for. One commentator sums it up this way. The tragedy is compounded by the fact that like Peter, we can have these unacceptable attitudes even while generally being in fellowship with Christ. Remember, Peter was praying when he had this vision. He had a beautiful attitude towards God, but a lousy attitude towards the world. So how's your attitude towards the world? Not in the sense of this system that's opposed to the things of God. We obviously recognize that, that our attitude towards that fallen system is, is, is what it is. But I'm talking about the world in the sense of the people who are in it, who are dying, who are desperately in need of a Savior. I'm talking about the world in terms of your neighbor. Do we think of them like Peter thought about the sheet? By no means, Lord. Or can we learn from Peter? And can we ask God for the grace to love our neighbors, to love those that we deem unlovable because of our preconceived notions? So the answer to the questions are very simple. Who belongs in the tent? Everybody. Who's God wants to see come to Christ? Every single person. The Bible says that God wants everyone to be saved, wants no one to perish. That's God's desire. So everyone belongs in the tent. You see that neighbor that, that you think, man, they're, they're crazy. They Drunken parties and people all hours of the night, those folks are never going to come to church. Guess what? God wants them saved as much as he wanted you saved. That homosexual, that, that their lifestyle drives you crazy. Hear me. God wants them saved as much as he wanted you saved. That person whose drug addiction and the way they treat their kids is abhorrent. God wants them saved as much as he wanted you saved. Who belongs in the tent? Everybody. Who belongs in the sheet that lets down from heaven all the, all the unclean things? Well, here's the thing. Nobody goes in our sheet because God's declared everybody clean in that sense. God wants everybody to be saved, so there's nobody that we reject. There's nobody that we, 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 we shun. There's nobody we look at and say, surely not I, Lord. And here's the thing. If we will approach the world with that attitude, you can't contain the gospel that will flow forth from that attitude. It can't be stopped. And our church, or any church, will be ready to face whatever's coming this way because of our commitment to the gospel and our commitment to the Great Commission. So how's God working on your heart? How's God challenging you? How's God calling you 
to respond. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for your word, and thank you for your work on the Apostle Peter. Lord, I think we all need to hear this, that we can be in a generally favorable place with you. And I know that I know that I can still have a lousy attitude towards the world. It's easy for us to drive through that part of town and judge the person that we see there. It's easy for us to see that news story and think, they're, they're not getting in. It's easy for us to look at people whose decisions and whether they're in politics or whatever it may be, I think there's no way they'll ever respond. But if I judge them in my own heart, before I've even taken the opportunity to point them to Jesus, then I'm not much of a disciple either. And Lord, we, we know that you don't ask us to compromise with sin. We know that you don't ask us to celebrate sinful choices and sinful decisions. And we understand that repentance is your kindness, but it's still part of what's required of us. But how can they hear without someone preaching? How can they hear without somebody sharing how can they hear without somebody inviting? Well, they can't. And so, Lord, that's on us. So, God, in these moments, I ask that you would, like Peter, that Saul, the scales that cover our eyes might fall away. And that we would see the people around us and the people who will soon be our neighbors. That we would see them as you see them. Men and women created in the precious image of God who need a right relationship with God through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may we rise to the challenge set in front of us and may we not be content with this reality that we've grown safe in And may we constantly be on mission for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.